to our meditation practice. Yesterday, as certainly you will remember, we we started out during the opening talk with some short verses from the Chandana Sutta of the Samyutta Nikaya. And to briefly restate those verses, who here crosses over the flood unwearying by day and night, who does not sink in the deep without support, without a hold. One always perfect in virtue, endowed with wisdom, well concentrated, one energetic and resolute, crosses the flood so hard to cross. One who desists from sensual perception, who has overcome the fetter of form, who has destroyed delight in existence, he or she does not sink in the deep. So the Buddha, in answer to the question raised by this young Devata Chandana then replies that a person who is always perfect in virtue, in ethical conduct, whose mind is well concentrated, who is endowed with wisdom, who is energetic and resolute, such a one crosses the flood so hard to cross. So in this certain verse we find already some of the main ingredients, mental states that are needed for the crossing over. And what we shall do today is then take this a step further and look for practice aspects that will help us to cross over the flood without suddenly getting swept away. Now, in this context, we can turn to the Satipatthana Sutta, which Shatna then describes Satna the practice or the establishment of mindfulness. And there we will find Satna plenty of inspiration, plenty of instructions on how to do the practice. But before going into the details of this, allow me to give you a synopsis of some of the features of mindfulness meditation. So for one thing, the basic features of mindfulness meditation in the Mahasi tradition are being mindful of prominent objects as they arise in the body and in the mind. 
And as they come up, during our formal sitting meditation, as they come up during our formal walking meditation and during general activities. Mindfulness certain meditation then needs to be accompanied by some auxiliary auxiliary practices such as the restraint of the senses, slowing down one's activities, and as the Buddha has certainly very much stressed, and as also mentioned in this verse spoken by the Buddha in response to the Devata Chandana, namely the training in ethical conduct, the training in concentration, the training in wisdom. Noble silence tends to support our practice and also a certain helpful structure will be there. So structure then consists of schedule of fitness, sitting, meditation, walking, meditation and general activities, plus the interviews and the occasional demo talks. Some of the basic aspects of mindfulness meditation practice are that we observe one object at a time, at least for the most part, and then we observe predominant objects according to reality and not according to our imagination or putting concepts onto our experiences. Mindfulness certain meditation could further be described as a process of increasingly coming into the present moment. One might boldly state, well, I am in the the here and now, but what does this mean? This is a pretty relative statement. So does this mean being uh, in the present moment once in a minute? Or does it mean being in the present moment once a second? Or does it mean being in the present moment from moment to moment? Now, obviously, at first, uh, we will, uh, our way of being in the present moment will still uh, be uh, rather, uh, well, with big gaps in between. But over time, the mind satna then will really be with the predominant objects from moment to moment. Mindfulness meditation could certainly further be described as a gradual process of the purification of the mind. Now, Satipatthana practice, or the establishment of mindfulness, this this is not saying mantras or doing mantra meditation. 
it's also not as stated, imagining new things, and then it's not introducing concepts into our practice, but rather just observing what truly arises. Probably during our forthcoming Dhamma talk on Monday, the topic will be mindfulness. And so for now, let us rest contented with the synopsis of the Satipatthana instructions as given in the Satipatthana Samyutta of the Samyutta Nikaya. Namely, special reference is made to the Ambapali Sutta. So this is certainly volume 5 of the Samyutta Nikaya, section 141. Here, O retreatants, retreatant dwells contemplating the body in the body, ardent, clearly comprehending and mindful, having set aside or having removed covetousness and discontent in regard to the world. The instructions then go on. One dwells contemplating feelings in feelings, ardent, clearly comprehending, and mindful, having removed covetousness and discontent in regard to the world. The third establishment of mindfulness then is about the mind, namely, one dwells contemplating mind in mind, ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed or put away covetousness and discontent in regard to the world. So this is Satna known as Satna Chittanupasna Satipatthana in the Pali scriptural language. The fourth and last of Satna, the four Satipatthanas, is known in the Pali scriptural language as Dhammanupasna Satipatthana and Satna, so the short Satna instruction is one dwells contemplating Dhammas in Dhammas, ardent, clearly comprehending and mindful, having removed covetousness and discontent in regard to the world. So if on occasion, especially during the early days of Fatna, this Satna retreat, you are in doubt as, as to how to observe an object, then please try to remember these instructions, Satipatthana instructions, as Satna given in the Ambapali Sutta of the Samyutta. Nikaya. So in the end, it's Satya being 
In the end, it's labeling, observing, and suddenly then observing and knowing the nature of whatever predominant object comes up in uh, the body, in the mind. And this during uh, our formal sitting practice, walking practice, and the general activities. Now, in several discourses, restraint of the senses in the Pali scriptural language known as Indriya Samvara Sila is being recommended as an auxiliary practice. And that then complements you know, the you know, practice of mindfulness certainly meditation now restraint of the senses oftentimes is understood and to be related to mostly restraint of one's eyes maybe also one's ears but in the end also other activities are involved, for instance, our speech. Now, to a great extent, we as a group of Fatna retreatants, certainly here at the Forest Refuge, determine the environment in which Fatna we practice. If we were to engage much in contentious talk, well, then uh, most likely some um, ill will will arise and some uh, difficulty, some friction will arise. Realizing this, the Buddha had the following advice to give to Elder Moggallana, one of the Buddha's two chief disciples. The Buddha says, Therefore, Moggallana, you should train yourself thus. We will not engage in contentious satna talk. It is in this way that you should train yourself. When there is an excess of words, one becomes restless. When one is restless, one loses one's restraint. The mind of one without restraint is far from concentration. And it is certain this kind of contentious or provocative talk that then can be given or cited as a cause for the arising of restlessness. So obviously we do not want to practice with the mind that unnecessarily gets agitated by useless contentious talk. And thus we restrain or we refrain from it, we restrain ourselves. So that then highlights you know, the importance of 
Vatnia, the restraint of the senses even more. Now, a relevant certain passage on the restraint of the senses can be found in the Maha Asapura Sutta of Vatnya the Majjhimat Nikaya, so that's the 39th Vatnya discourse, near section or paragraph 8. What this Asapura Sutta does is it recommends all sorts of practices that a monastic should undertake to be worth the support of the laity. And among these various practices, we have the restraint of the senses. What more is to be done, the Buddha asks. Because you should train thus, we will guard the doors of our sense faculties. On seeing a form with the eye, we will not grasp at its more general signs and not at its more particular features. The Pali term for general signs is nimita, and the Pali term for particular features is anubhyanjana. Just for the sake of a better understanding, a sign would be one sees some human being coming towards oneself at a distance, but since you know, the person is still far away, one can't clearly know whether this is a man or a woman. And then as the person comes a bit closer, one then sees features that Satna are one sees signs that are common for a man, or one sees certain signs common to a woman, and thus then knows this is a man coming or a woman coming along. Now, as the person comes even closer, one will then sooner or later see the different features of the person's face, the, the way you know, the eyes are you know, shaped, the you know, shape of the nose, the, of the mouth, and so on. These certain you know, things are referred to or are meant by you know, the particular features. So, since the discourse continues, if we left the eye faculty unguarded, evil, unwholesome states of covetousness and grief might invade us. We will practice the way of its restraint. We will guard the eye faculty. We will undertake the restraint of the eye faculty. So, if we do not certainly restrain our eyes, and we look around and we you know, take a closer look at our fellow you know, retreatants, and in particular you know, those of the opposite certain sex, then you know, some interest might uh, you know, be aroused. And this then happens because we pay closer attention to the sign of the respective person and certainly you know, the specific features. 
the result of this might of this lack of restraint then it might be the arising of some covetousness or some sense desire on hearing a sound with the ear, on smelling an odor with the nose, on tasting a flavor with the tongue, on touching a tangible with the body, on cognizing or being conscious a mind object with the mind, we will not grasp at its signs and features, since if we left the mind faculty unguarded, unwholesome states of covetousness and grief might invade us. We will practice the way of its restraint of the mind faculty. Now, or because and by extensional retreatants, you may think thus, we are possessed of shame and fear of wrongdoing, our bodily conduct, verbal conduct, mental conduct and livelihood have been purified and we guard the doors of our senses of our sense faculties that much is enough and you may rest content with that much because i inform you i declare to you you who seek the recluse's status do not fall short of the goal of recluseship while there's more to be done. Translation of this discourse as well as Satna, the earlier one, earlier one from the Samyutta Nikaya was done both by Bhikkhu, Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi. Now, what are the benefits to be expected from this restraint of the senses, well, several benefits are likely to arise. For one thing, restraint of the senses will prevent the mind from being assaulted, unnecessarily assaulted by or bombarded by sense impressions and thus the mind will not be disturbed by external objects with which one comes in contact through the senses. Now, secondly, restraint of the senses leads to at least a temporary freedom from mental defilement such as covetousness, ill will, dejection and the like. So if one does not, because of restraint of one's senses, one does not see an enticing object, well, then there's no opportunity or no chance for covetousness for desire to arise in the mind. And hence, Satna, the mind will be temporarily pure. Now, this in turn then will lead to the arising of a sense of ease in Pali known as Sukha. The text Satna described this as Ajatam Abhyasika Sukham Pati Samvideti, 
which means one experiences within oneself a sense of ease, of sukkah, into which no unwholesome state can enter. Now, The Abhidhamma tells us and its experience Satna verifies Satna this uh, this Satna point, the following point, namely that a mind that is at ease, a mind that is happy, is a mind that is greatly distracted or concentrated. Concentrated. There you go. So Happiness, then, being one of the two proximate causes for the arising of concentration. And the concentration, in turn, then, is one of the two proximate causes for the arising of? Of wisdom. There you go. Intuitive wisdom. So the fact that because of our restraint of the senses, an ease arises in the mind, happiness arises in the mind, has positive consequences. It leads to a mind that is more concentrated and that in turn then allows for the arising of intuitive wisdom. Therefore, the Buddha uh, uh, praises this restraint of uh, the senses in the f- in the words uh, or in, in verse form, as is recorded in Dhammapada verse number three hundred and sixty and three hundred and sixty-one. There it says, "Chakuna samvaro sadhu, sadhu sutena samvaro, ganina samvaro sadhu, sadhu jivayatna samvaro." Good is restrained over the eye. Good is restrained over the ear. Good is restrained over the nose. Good is restrained over the tongue. samvaro sadhu sadhu vachaya samvaro. Manasa samvaro sadhu sadhu sabata samvaro. Sabata samuto bhikkhu sabadukha pamuchati. Which means in English, good is restrained in the body, good is restrained in speech, good is restrained in thought. Restraint everywhere is good. Retreatant, restrained in every way is freed from all suffering. Now, when it comes to the practice of mindfulness meditation, different approaches are there. Some approaches lay out the mindfulness practice over decades, and certainly others prefer to do the practice in a more intense way. The Venerable Mahasiddhanta of Burma clearly favored intensity of 
practice. And he expresses Satna this as follows. He said, as is recorded in his Satna basic meditational uh, exercises, noble, powerful, fruition, knowledge are attained only when there's this kind of gathering momentum. The meditative process is like that of producing fire by energetically and unremittingly rubbing two sticks of wood together so as to attain the necessary intensity of heat. So in our mindfulness satna practice, intensity does matter. And there are the ways to, or ways to practice that then will help to keep up that intensity. From an experiential point of view, in the beginning, the retreat and the intensity of practice will still be somewhat low. In a retreat and you know, who's done some practice, it might be already a bit more intense. And certainly then someone who's practiced a great deal and who knows how to do the practice, the intensity of the practice can be quite, uh, quite high. As mentioned already, during the opening talk yesterday, as well as this morning, the three aspects of the occurrence of an object, the labeling, the observation of it, and knowing its nature, these are or these are aspects that help us to do the practice better. And when we're actually observing objects, then on occasion to check, so an object is occurring, am I truly labeling this object or am I lost in thinking? Am I actually observing this object or drifting? And am I really knowing something about the nature of the object? If we do label, if we do observe, and we do know the true nature of the respective object, well, then this is good. If not, we might want to adjust a bit. The continuity of mindfulness has already been stressed, and this continuity of mindfulness is not just, Im or continuity is not just important for mindfulness, but it's also uh, important for 
other mental factors, such as our effort. So our effort should not be intermittent in nature, but be as sustained as possible. The same thing then goes ideally, at least for our concentration. And so when these three, effort, mindfulness and concentration, are fairly continuous throughout the day, well, then intuitive wisdom will easily arise. Beginning retreatants at times, not all, some don't suddenly see the value of the practice or for some unrelated reasons, then find themselves engaging in activities that are not necessarily helpful to the mindfulness practice, such as uh, extensive reading and writing, and making uh, phone calls, and certainly keeping one's certain mobile phone or cell phone switched on, receiving and sending SMS messages, talking to fellow retreatants, and suddenly sleeping for hours on end, so let's say eight, ten hours a day, and then maybe even socializing. Those are unrelated activities that are not directly related to intensive mindfulness practice. And those kind of activities do not help our mindfulness practice. Now, this is said not just from imagination, but in connection with several discourses that certainly speak to this, this area or these kind of activities. There are passages in several passages in the Anguttara Nikaya that list activities that either are said to hinder spiritual progress or activities, qualities that lead even to the decline of a retreatant who is a trainee. Now, the first such passage is from the third volume of the Anguttara Nikaya, namely in section 329. The Buddha says, Bhikkhus, Bhikkhunis, and late retreatants, these six qualities lead to the decline of a retreatant who is a trainee. What six? Delight in work being the first, the second being delight in talk, delight in th 
sleep comes as the third, then followed by delight in company, then number five is not guarding the doors of the sense faculties, so in other words, lack of restraint of the senses, and then the last one is a lack of moderation in eating. These six qualities lead to the decline of a retreatant who is a trainee. The mind has a tendency to want to get away from being shaped or trained. And thus, or when difficult experiences come up, it will want to run away from it. And certainly then will easily and happily engage in work. Even work that under normal circumstances we might not even like. Or... When boredom arises in our practice, we might find ourselves uh, talking to others and enjoying this. Or on occasion when things get somewhat difficult, much dukkha arises, the only pleasant experience that is left is going to bed and certainly sleeping soundly. So it seems to a retreatant. Now, my taking delight in company is certainly meant, or this particular aspect can be best understood by the opposite, namely the Buddha declaring this Dhamma is for one who resorts to solitude. So this Dhamma is not for one who delights in company. The Pali term here is Sanganika for company. The negative consequences of not certain restraining one's senses have been briefly mentioned, at least one, or, or well, some. And certainly, thus, there's no need to go into this any further. And if one were to eat an awful lot, well, it's obvious this will lead to drowsiness. Now, a different passage from the Anguttara Nikaya, namely the Book of the Sixes, Discourse 14, and then speaks of activities that hinder spiritual progress. Again, six in number, the first four are the same, namely work, talk, sleep, and company. And certainly the fifth and sixth ones are different. 
bonding or companionship, samsaga is given uh, as another activity that hinders spiritual practice. So association with others. And then the last one being prolific conceptualization, prolific mental proliferation. Now, to some extent, we all do this. And might and we in so doing we might not even realize the consequences of what we're doing. The Buddha has some rather straight forward language in this context. He says, "The fool who engages in and finds the light in prolific conceptualization is far removed from nibbana." the incomparable freedom from bondage and he or she who gives up prolific conceptualization and delights in the path to non-conceptualization attains to Nibbana, the incomparable freedom from bondage. So the next time around, when we find ourselves lost in thinking, maybe analyzing, analyzing what's going on in the practice, trying to understand what is happening, maybe also reflecting about certain various certain dhamma aspects, and then we might want to remember that certain. Conceptualization, a prolific conceptualization, might not be all that helpful to our practice. Now, another feature that is important in the context of mindfulness satnet meditation is to keep the mind in the present moment. And in this regard, we can turn to the Padika Ratna Sutta of the Majima Nikaya that Satna then highlights how important it is to keep the mind in the present moment. So it says, let not a person revive the past or on the future build his or her hopes. For the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, with with insight, let the person see each presently arisen state. So that uh, the focus is on this, the, you know, on observing the presently arising objects. Let you know, the person know that and be sure of it invincibly and unshakably. Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow death may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him, him or her away and certain deaths hordes or death and him and death hordes away. 
Now, sometimes even subtle you know, things can have a major impact on our practice. And certainly here I would like to uh, refer especially you know, to uh, our attitudes. The attitudes certainly that certainly we bring along, the attitudes that we have towards practice. Now, from an experiential point of view, it can be said that if the attitude of a retreat and is not quite certain correct, then this certainly might have a negative impact on the practice. So, though we may be following the schedule, observing the precepts, restraining the senses, observing silence and following you know, the Satipatthana instructions, yet our meditation practice may not be unfolding. The reason for this might be that our attitude towards practice is not helpful. When it comes to you know, attitudes towards practice, we can discern, distinguish between two broad categories, namely attitudes certain that are not really helpful to practice and others that are very much helpful you know, to practice. Now, quite a number of those unhelpful attitudes exist and allow me you know, to just mention a few without certainly going too much into the details. One's attitude might be a goal-oriented attitude or having had you know, some a wonderful experience such as a state of great calm, then one might want to recreate the experience. A retreatant might adopt a rather bushy practice, uh, sorry, bushy attitude towards sadhana practice interfering, manipulating, controlling of things, being very ego-centered. Or it could be that uh, a retreatant goes about certain, uh, one, uh, his or her meditation being strongly influenced by conceit, comparing all the time. Comparing himself or herself you know, to others as being either you know, better or equal or you know, inferior. Or, as happens certain time and again, that a retreatant uh, brings uh, up, or uh, observes certain objects with quite some uh, mental resistance. So, being here, doing the practice, yet certainly resisting certain experiences. Or it could certainly be that certainly we practice with an easy-going, 
casualness, sloppy uh, and negle uh, neglectful uh, attitude. These are just uh, some examples. What should be clear by now, unhelpful attitudes are attitudes that are based in what? Wholesome mental states or unwholesome mental states? Clearly, the unwholesome mental states. Each and every of those unhelpful attitudes mentioned just now is based in some unwholesome mental state. So in other words, we actually do the practice from the very, very beginning we want to, as much as possible, that's not always easy to do, but at least we can try, to adopt a wholesome attitude. So an attitude that is rooted in some wholesome mental state. And every time we find that this is not the case in the mind, or our attitude instead is rooted or based in an unwholesome mental state, then to become aware of this itself, so to take that unwholesome attitude, unhelpful attitude, as an object of observation, to label it, to observe it, to know its nature. And suddenly then sooner or later it might suddenly then... Um, at dissolve. Among the helpful attitudes, we have quite a number of those, and here, generally speaking, a helpful attitude is one that is based in a wholesome mental state. So an attitude that is based in non-greed, non-hatred, in non-delusion, absence of conceit, in other words, humility, then that is certainly based in effort, in faith, and certainly in detachment or equanimity, in calmness, and sadness, interest, etc. The venerable side of Panita Bibhams of Burma, on many occasions, has stressed the importance of doing the practice with an attitude of care and respect. Now, this is possible only if one sees the value of one's mindfulness practice. And doing so, seeing its value, appreciating it, one will naturally want to then undertake the practice with care and respect. Now, retreatants certainly sometimes don't realize to which extent certainly this could be done. Synonyms that might certainly help here 
yeah, for a better understanding, are words such as practicing with devotion. One devotes oneself wholeheartedly to the practice, or you know, to express certain things you know, again in slightly different words, namely to surrender you know, to the practice and to you know, simply observe whatever comes along with an attitude of acceptance, of allowance. Now, during the previous retreat and taught here you know, two years ago I you know, mentioned uh, or gave an illustration you know, for you know, someone who um, cherishes this attitude of care and respect namely the owner of a vintage car so if you were to be the owner of a vintage car, then you would uh, uh, this old car would be very important to you, and you might suddenly give it a special place in your garage. You might look after it on many occasions. You'll walk into the garage and shine it up so that it sparkles like anything. And then on a sunny and bright day, especially when there's a vintage car rally, you might take your old and noble vintage car down uh, some uh, major uh, street, paying much attention not to bump into the other vintage cars and also paying close attention that some other car will not bump into your car. Now, this is how the owner of a vintage Shatner car you know, has much respect and certain care towards certain his or her vintage car. Now, the vintage cars go back you know, to a period from um, 1919 to you know, 1930. When it comes to the Dhamma, it is far older than any vintage car and therefore it deserves even more care and respect. So during our retreat Satna here at the forest Satna refuge let us be diligent in our uh, practice, Have uh, be patient with what happens in our own practice, also be uh, patient with the shortcomings of others, and have consideration for one another, and certainly also keep uh, a mind filled with goodwill uh, towards uh, others. If we then add determination and certain care and respect to you know, this mix of certain attitudes, then 
uh, the practice should unfold quite nicely. Now, the Metta Sutta, the Karaniya Metta Sutta, contains in its initial verses a number of qualities to be cherished by a retreatant, by one who wants to attain that state of peace. And among those certain qualities, we have ability, ability in different you know, senses, namely you know, to keep the precepts and to have you know, f to keep the precepts, to have faith, to be healthy, and so on. Then uprightness, obedience, gentleness, humility, contentment, to be easy, easily supported, to be a retreatant with few duties, to be one who is certain frugal, who and then is careful in the use of what certain ever items are being provided, then who is controlled in senses, which we've touched upon already, a person who is mature in wisdom, not presumptuously confident and self-assured, and also one who is not overly attached. So, these are qualities that the Metta Sutta recommends, and they very much apply not only to Metta practice, but also to our Satipatthana practice. Allow me to conclude today's Dhamma talk by wishing May you keep in mind the synopsis of you know, the Satipatthana instructions. May you apply you know, those instructions time and again. And Satna, then may your practice of mindfulness be accompanied by a good restraint of the senses, so the eye door, the ear door, the nose door, the tongue, body, and mind door. May this be further accompanied by performing all activities as slowly as possible, keeping the mind in the present moment and certainly then further more may you work towards certain or may the may well the practice be intense to an extent that you can handle but it needs to be a balanced form of intensity and keeping and or and further you know, practicing with attitudes that are helpful you know, to our mindfulness meditation. In so doing, may your mindfulness practice unfold and you know, may you know, 
intuitive wisdom arise and may that intuitive wisdom turn into liberating wisdom. And this is it for now.